On July 21st, 1919, a 150-foot-long silver balloon named the Wingfoot Express took its maiden voyage around Chicago. The hydrogen-filled blimp cruised slowly around the city and achieved maximum publicity along the way. Dirigibles were the hot new thing, and Chicagoans were entranced, especially the 14,000 baseball fans at Comiskey Park, south of downtown, who split their attention between the dirigible and a doubleheader between the hometown White Sox and their rivals for the American League championship, the New York Yankees. The White Sox had won the first game and were again in the lead when the Wingfoot Express began its last trip of the day, setting off a little before 5 p.m. The blimp was expected to pass directly over the field in the fourth or fifth inning. The Wingfoot Express sailed over downtown. The White Sox were up by four. And then a spurt of flame leapt from the top of the blimp. The fans, as one, began to scream. This is the year that was, 1919. Welcome back to the podcast where we look at history one year at a time. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday. Thank you so much for listening. It's great to be back with you again. I had expected to take a break in March since I had several work deadlines, but I did not expect a global pandemic to shut everything down. I'm sorry for my long absence. It's been weird, as I'm sure it's been weird for all of you, but I'm thrilled to be back, and I hope that all of you are well and are muddling through these very strange times. One more thing before we begin, I talked many times in the last few episodes about the efforts of civil rights leaders to pass legislation that would make lynching a federal crime. Well, on February 26, 2020, the House of Representatives did just that. The Senate passed its own legislation in 2019, so the bill is expected to be signed into law. This is, in one sense, momentous. It is, in another sense, far too little, far too late. The law might have made a difference a century ago. Now it is a gesture, a symbol. Symbols matter, but not as much as prosecutions and prison terms. I can imagine Ida Wells Barnett looking down on us and saying, it took you long enough. Now, we're going to spend most of our time today talking about baseball, but I want to begin with the story of the airship. These are two totally different stories with only a tenuous link between them, but the Wingfoot Express disaster is an amazing tale that I really want to share. So let's return to Comiskey Park at 4.55 on Monday, July 21st, 1919, when the first jets of flame shot up from the Wingfoot Express. On the field, play stopped. Everything stopped. Everyone stared toward downtown. There are no photographs or film reels of the Wingfoot Express disaster, which is why it is not remembered when the Hindenburg disaster of 1937 is. If you've seen the Hindenburg footage, you'll know the incredible speed of its destruction. The Hindenburg caught fire, crashed, and collapsed in about 30 seconds. So accounts of the Wingfoot Express incinerating almost instantaneously are believable. 
any stray spark could have started the fire. Only five people were on board, the pilot, two mechanics, a public relations agent, and a photographer. The first they knew there was a problem was when they felt a sort of tremor or shudder in the ship. In the split second it took for them to look up, flames had begun licking up the sides of the balloon. At Comiskey Park, the crowd watched five tiny figures plummet from the flaming ship. They barely had time to open their parachutes. One man landed on a roof. Two collided with buildings on their way down. The parachute of another, horribly, was caught in the rigging, and he dangled 50 feet below the inferno. The parachute of another man, mechanic Carl Weaver, caught fire before it could inflate and he fell like a stone. That Monday had been an ordinary day at the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank. Located downtown on the corner of LaSalle Street and Jackson Boulevard, the bank's interior centered around a two-story rotunda under a huge glass skylight. The outer ring of the rotunda held teller stations. In the center stood desks of clerks, telegraph operators, and stenographers. This inner area could only be accessed through two gated entrances. The workday was winding down, and the stenographers were beginning to pull the covers over their typewriters. Then a shadow passed over the skylight. Before anyone could react, a burst of light filled the room, quick like a photographer's flash. Then the skylight shattered. A body, a horribly burned and mangled body, plunged to the floor. It was the body of Carl Weaver. Weaver's body was followed by flaming debris, the engine, two fuel tanks. The tanks exploded, spraying gasoline everywhere. What hadn't been on fire before now was. Inside the rotunda, bank staff scrambled through the flames to the two exits. Some crawled through the narrow teller windows. The heat was incredible. At Comiskey Park, the fans and players stood in silence. Only the sports reporters were in motion, frantically telegraphing out the news. Downtown, firefighters and ambulances arrived. Bystanders wrapped jackets around dazed and bleeding bank staff. The pilot and one of the mechanics received only minor injuries. The other three men on board were killed, along with 10 employees of the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank. Among them was a clerk named Carl Otto, who had returned to work that day after several weeks off sick with the Spanish flu. His wife had wanted him to take one more day to recover. After a time, the umpires and managers at the ballpark decided to resume play, but the crowd trickled away. The White Sox won the game 5-4. The Wingfoot Express disaster had several consequences. Questions were asked about why what was basically a flying bomb was allowed to soar barely a thousand feet over a major metropolitan area. Within hours, the nation's first air traffic regulations were being drafted. Goodyear decided hydrogen was far too dangerous for airships and switched to non-flammable helium instead. Nevertheless, hydrogen airships continued to be built, and through the 1920s and into the 1930s, many experts believed dirigibles had greater potential for long-distance passenger travel than airplanes. That all changed with the Hindenburg. After that disaster, no one ever wanted to fly in an airship again. 
I could come up with some sort of poetic transition here to baseball, but that seems forced. The Wingfoot Express wasn't a metaphor. It was a real tragedy, and 13 people died. So we will simply move on to baseball. I want to tell you today about one of the most notorious moments in American sports history, the 1919 World Series, and the men who became known as the Black Sox. I've tried to write this episode so it is clear to any listener, those familiar with baseball and those who have never seen a game. I'm assuming you know this much. In baseball, a pitcher from one team stands in the middle of a field and throws a ball at a batter from another team who tries to hit it. And if you are a baseball fan, I've taken extra steps to make sure I have made no humiliating errors. My husband, a lifetime fan and true believer, has reviewed it for me. Or really, for you. It is hard to overstate the importance of baseball in America in 1919. It was the only truly nationwide professional sport and praised as a healthy, outdoor, all-American activity. Cultural commentators celebrated the way baseball crossed economic and social barriers. Everyone had the same experience at a baseball game. There were no luxury boxes. And anyone could talk baseball to anyone without regard for class or ethnicity. Of course, this is an overstatement. Baseball was strictly segregated. African Americans had been barred from Major League Ball since 1887. A few Latinx, Native American, and Native Hawaiians were allowed to play, but only under sufferance. So don't run away with the idea of baseball as an equalizing force. Games were played during the day because lighting technology wasn't good enough to illuminate an entire field. You had to be at a game to really follow the action, although some newspapers posted the progress of games in their windows. Reporters telegraphed every pitch and hit to their editors back in the office. Some bars shared the cable line and posted play-by-play for their patrons. But most people kept up with the game summaries and box scores in the newspaper. This would soon change as radio took off. The first baseball game would be broadcast in 1921. The game itself was largely the same as today, except for a few factors. One is the physical condition of players. You only have to look at photos of players then compared with players today and realize how much stronger and fitter today's athletes are. Naturally, today's players run faster and hit harder than those a century ago. The other difference is in the condition of the ball itself. While today a baseball might only be used for a dozen pitches, in 1919 baseballs were used until the stitches unraveled. Heavily used balls are softer and they don't travel as far when hit. Furthermore, it was perfectly legal for pitchers to scuff balls, scrape at them with emery boards, rub them against concrete walls, or spit on them. Even small changes to the ball cause it to travel irregularly and make it difficult to hit. The result was fewer hits and hits that traveled shorter distances. Home runs, where the batter hits the ball out of the park, were vanishingly rare. In 1913, Frank Baker became known as Home Run Baker because he hit a total of 12 home runs in a season. For context, Pete Alonso was the MLB home run leader in the 2019 season with 53 home runs. 
Then, as now, Major League Baseball teams were organized into two leagues, the American League and the National League. The two leagues were separate entities who operated as rivals, except that the league champions played one another at the World Series at the end of the season. They also shared some important policies. The most important of these, for our purposes, was the reserve clause. This was a clause in player contracts that allowed teams to hold players in reserve even after their standard contract terms ended. Players were unable to negotiate or sign with another team while on reserve. The reserve clause was great for team owners who were able to sign players early in their careers at low salaries and keep them on their teams as long as the owners liked. The system allowed rich teams and poor teams to operate on an even footing since wealthy teams couldn't lure away players with high pay. But the system frustrated ballplayers who had no leverage to negotiate for higher salaries. It also frustrated new teams and new leagues. In 1914, a group of businessmen tried to start a new professional baseball league. The Federal League poached a few major league stars at nicely raised salaries. The annoyed American and National Leagues threatened legal action. Fine, said the Federal League, and filed a lawsuit itself. This suit claimed that the established leagues were violating federal antitrust laws and operating as an illegal monopoly. The suit asked that the reserve clause be declared illegal. This was a disaster because it was true. Baseball was an illegal monopoly. The case was assigned to the docket of Chicago-based federal judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. And if you think to yourself... Self? Surely I've heard that distinctive name before. You have. In episode 14 on the Wobblies, I described the 1918 trial of 101 IWW members under the Espionage Act, a trial that was presided over by Kennesaw Mountain Landis. I mentioned at the time that he was a huge baseball fan and that that fact would become relevant later. And here we are. The Federal League's antitrust suit could not have landed on the desk of anyone more invested in the future of the game. Landis loved baseball and slipped out of the courtroom to catch a game any time he could. He talked baseball to anyone who cared, or didn't care for that matter. Once when asked about his decision in an antitrust case, he replied with a five-minute pricey on the relative merits of the Detroit Tigers and the Cincinnati Reds. Landis knew that the law was on the side of the Federal League. He had few options if he wanted to protect the status quo. He could follow the law and rule the Reserve Clause illegal. Or he could ignore the law, keep the Reserve Clause intact, and be overturned on appeal. The result would be the same. This appalled Landis because he dreaded the result. Rich teams snatching up stars, poor teams falling apart, players haggling over play, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Baseball to Landis was a sacred thing. He once vehemently objected when the Federal League Council referred to baseball as labor. Baseball wasn't labor. Landis probably believed the game should be played out of love, not for a salary. All of this haggling was unseemly. 
like money lenders in the temple. So Landis did nothing. He did nothing before spring training. He did nothing when the season began. He did nothing as spring turned to summer and summer turned to fall. Meanwhile, the Federal League was struggling financially. It's expensive to start a baseball league. Landis kept on doing nothing as the Federal League fell apart and shut its doors in late fall 1915. Suddenly, Landis was ready to render a decision. He dismissed the case as moot. It was a clever way to preserve baseball in existing form despite the law. Team owners looked upon Landis and approved. The next challenge to confront baseball was the Great War. The United States declared war a few days before the opening of the 1917 baseball season. Anxiety swept through clubhouses until President Wilson made it known that he wanted sports to continue as usual, at least in the short term. However, after the World Series that October, the draft board announced that all men between ages of 21 and 30 would be called up unless they had jobs in essential industries like shipbuilding or munitions. As the start of the 1918 season neared, some baseball leaders panicked, among them Ban Johnson, the president of the American League. He announced he planned to petition the government to exempt 288 players from the draft. That would leave each team with 18 players. The remaining men on each team would be conscripted. Johnson essentially volunteered the bottom third of each team as cannon fodder while protecting the league's best. Johnson stated to the press, quote, an unknown benchwarmer might be a better soldier in the trenches than a star pitcher or champion batsman, unquote. Players, especially those in the bottom third, were furious, and the public derided Johnson's attempt to create a privileged class of ballplayers. Johnson was denounced as unpatriotic, selfish, and possibly traitorous. He quickly retracted his proposal. Now, don't forget about Ban Johnson. He will return to our story later. A frustrated Secretary of War, who really had more important things to worry about, agreed to extend the deferments for Major League players until September 1, 1918. Owners compressed the 1918 season so that the regular season would end on that date. However, throughout that season, teams saw their players slipping away. Some enlisted. Slightly more than a third of Major League players served in the military, and eight current or former players were either killed in action or died of illness in the war. Another path was open to players, however. Many found work in shipyards and steel plants, ostensibly as welders, painters, and laborers in essential industry. In fact, they were still playing ball. Many large companies had their own baseball teams. The level of play was high, and the salaries were generous. Dozens of ballplayers, including Babe Ruth and Shoeless Joe Jackson, of whom more later, went to work for the factory teams. Major League owners panicked. They feared industrial baseball would drive them out of business. The reaction was ugly. They denounced the factory players as unpatriotic cowards. Charles Comiskey, owner of the Chicago White Sox, told the media he was uncertain if he wanted players like Jackson back on his team after the war. Quote, I don't consider them fit to play for my club. I hate to see players, particularly my own, go to the shipyards to escape service. Unquote. 
the attack worked. Baseball players began to shy away from the industrial leagues. Baseball managed to hold itself together through the 1918 season. The World Series was played in early September, the earliest World Series in baseball history. In Game 7 of the series, as part of the patriotic fervor of the time, the Star-Spangled Banner was played for the very first time at a baseball game. Before any more players could be sent overseas, the war ended. Immediately, the economy slowed, and factories could no longer justify high salaries for baseball players. League owners, despite their threats, were happy to welcome back their stars. Incidentally, the end of the 1918 season meant that Major League play was ending by the time the second wave of the Spanish flu pandemic reached its peak that fall. Some public health officials advised calling off the World Series, but baseball officials refused, and it's likely that the disease spread in the packed stands in Boston and Chicago. In the following weeks and months, many players, sports writers, and umpires fell ill, including Babe Ruth. Among those who died was a well-known and highly respected umpire named Silk O'Loughlin, who called the balls and strikes for 16 seasons, including at five World Series. By the following spring, life seemed to be returning back to normal. Baseball fans looked forward to an uneventful 1919 season. The Chicago White Sox got off to a good start, and soon the bookmakers were predicting they would become the American League champions and make it to the World Series. The team had a group of strong players and one genuine superstar. That player was Joe Jackson, Shoeless Joe. Jackson was a 32-year-old outfielder, and he was, in a word, remarkable. He still holds the third-place position for best career batting average in Major League history. Jackson was the son of a South Carolina sharecropper who went to work at a textile mill at age six. He never received an education. He started playing ball for the mill team and amazed everyone with his strength and speed. One day, he wore to the game a new pair of cleats that gave him blisters. So he played the game in his socks. He was Shoeless Joe from then on. He started playing Major League Ball in 1911. After a childhood of extreme poverty, he developed a taste for the finer things. Jackson wore bespoke suits, pink silk shirts, and patent leather shoes, and he drove a brand new Oldsmobile. He was hugely popular, both for his skill and for his kindness to fans. Aside from Jackson, the White Sox had an excellent roster with a fantastic catcher, several top-notch infielders, and a handful of talented pitchers. The best of these was Eddie Seacott, nicknamed Knuckles. He was one of the first, or possibly the first, knuckleballer. A knuckleball is an unusual way of pitching a baseball so that the ball travels unpredictably through the air and is incredibly hard to hit. Seacott had a great career. His 1917 season had been fantastic, and he won 29 out of 36 games in 1919. But he'd been in a slump all through 1918. Another season like that would end him. Seacott was an introspective, intelligent man. Sports writer Ring Lardner called him the smartest pitcher in baseball. 
Of course, the White Sox weren't uniformly excellent. The team had its share of basically adequate players. Among them was Chick Gandil, the first baseman. No one outside of a few drinking buddies really liked Gandil. In May 1919, he got into a brawl with Cleveland outfielder Tris Speaker on the field at the top of the eighth inning. No one on his team pitched in to help Gandil, and some were even cheering for Speaker. The umpire took his time breaking it up since, he said, Gandil had it coming. Gandil had a reputation for being crooked. In 1917, he collected $45 from each White Sox player to convince the Detroit Tigers pitchers to go easy on them in a Labor Day weekend series. So the 1919 White Sox seemed poised for great things. And yet, within the clubhouse, the mood was grim. Players were frustrated with owner Charles Comiskey and the entire baseball leadership. It seemed unfair that they worked hard every day for men who hadn't hesitated to volunteer them for the trenches or badmouth them to the press. They also felt underpaid. Now, this is a key point. The members of the Chicago White Sox have been painted as barely getting by financially, while Comiskey has been called the cheapest man in baseball. Now, Comiskey was cheap. If a ball was hit into the stands, Comiskey insisted fans give it back. But the White Sox were not the lowest paid players in the game, and many were getting paid quite well. Jackson made $6,000 in 1919 and Seacott $8,000. This placed them in the top 20 salaries in the American League. Gandil received $3,500, about average for an average player. Let's put these salaries into context. The average American income in 1919 was about $1,500 a year. Public school teachers and textile workers made between $900 and $950. So it's hard to feel too sorry for Jackson or Seacott or even Gandil. Of course, caveat supply. The careers of professional athletes are short, so they must earn as much as they can as fast as they can. Experts agree that Jackson was underpaid considering his talent. Seacott could also have made much more in an open market. And for additional context, $6,000 in 1919 is equivalent to about $90,000 today. The current minimum salary for Major League Baseball players is $563,000. But at the end of the day, Seacott, Jackson, and the rest were doing okay. The issue really wasn't the dollar figure. It was the injustice of a relationship where owners had all of the power and players had none. This was a frustration felt by many American workers in 1919. The Wobblies would have agreed with the sentiment. And players tried several times to organize a union, including in 1912 and later in 1922, but were unable to get traction. So the situation festered. And all through the 1919 season, a sense of grievance simmered in the White Sox clubhouse. One last important fact about baseball in 1919, gambling was everywhere. Gambling was as much a part of baseball as peanuts and Cracker Jacks. So was game fixing when players accepted cash to deliberately lose or throw a game. 
As far back as 1865, the catcher for the New York Mutuals accepted $100 from a gambler to throw a game with the Brooklyn Eckfords. By 1919, everyone in or near baseball was gambling. Owners bet owners, managers bet managers, players bet players. At the very first Modern World Series in 1903, the Boston Post estimated $25,000 had been wagered on the game. The first two games of the season were likely fixed. Let me just restate that. The first two games of the first World Series were probably fixed. Periodically, the leagues made statements decrying gambling, but they did nothing to stop it. Frankly, it wasn't in their interest to do so. A discredited game would attract fewer fans. It was more important to maintain the reputation of the game than to actually clean it up. So players took gamblers' money and owners looked the other way. It was widely rumored that members of the Chicago Cubs had been paid $10,000 to throw the 1918 World Series against the Boston Red Sox. So why not the White Sox? It's not clear who came up with the idea to throw the 1919 World Series or how the plan developed. One thing that all accounts agree on, Chick Gandil was at the heart of the scheme. Gandil had a reputation for game fixing and was known to have friends with access to the gambling underworld. Two of his contacts were former athletes named Bill Burns and Billy Mayharg. In mid-September 1919, they began talking to their connections in New York about fixing the series. This brought them to the attention of Arnold Rothstein. Now, it has never been proven that Arnold Rothstein was involved, but everyone familiar with the case, both then and now, agrees that only Rothstein could have financed the operation. Rothstein was a larger-than-life figure. F. Scott Fitzgerald modeled the character Meyer Wolfsheim in The Great Gatsby on Rothstein. Wolfsheim is Jay Gatsby's suspicious underworld business associate. Damon Runyon also based a character on Rothstein. Why, it's good old reliable Nathan, 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 Detroit. If you're looking for action, he'll furnish the spot. Even when the heat is on, it's never too hot. Not for good old reliable Nathan, for it's always just a short walk to the oldest established permanent holding craft game in New York. Rothstein did, in fact, run New York's longest-running floating crap game, which relocated to a new hotel or apartment every night, although not, as far as we know, a back room at the Salvation Army. Rothstein also fixed horse races, boxing matches, and innumerable baseball games. Like Nathan Detroit, Rothstein was a sharp dresser who held court at Lindy's Restaurant. But the musical makes Detroit charming. In reality, Rothstein was a very scary man. Early in 1919, Rothstein shot three policemen in front of 19 people. He was overseeing a craps game at 2 in the morning in a West 57th Street apartment when he heard a heavy knock at the door. He fired three shots through the wooden door. Each one hit a New York City police officer. 
Fortunately, the wounds weren't serious, and Rothstein had his limo driver take the officers to the hospital. The three policemen then apologized for inconveniencing Mr. Rothstein. Rothstein was indicted, but the case was dismissed for lack of witnesses. The 19 men in the room with Rothstein testified they had no idea who had fired the shots. In fact, most of them denied they had even heard shots fired. It was an utter mystery. And that was that. Burns and Mayhark arrived in New York in late September, shortly after the White Sox won the American League Championship. Rothstein invited them to dinner at the Astor Hotel in Times Square, the busiest dining room in New York City. Three other men joined them, at least one of whom was later reported to be a New York City police detective. Burns and Mayharg made their pitch to Rothstein. For $100,000, a group of White Sox players would throw the World Series. Rothstein exploded. How dare Burns and Mayhard propose a criminal enterprise to him, Arnold Rothstein, respectable New York businessman? He wanted nothing to do with their conspiracy. Several hundred witnesses, from socialites to the waitstaff, watched as Rothstein and Burns nearly came to blows. They could all have testified that Arnold Rothstein had refused any deal to fix the World Series. It was all an act. A few days later, Rothstein, or more likely one of his flunkies, contacted Burns and Mayharg and told them to go ahead. Back in Chicago, a group of players gathered in Eddie Seacott's room at the Warner Hotel. Also in attendance were two gentlemen from New York, guests of Gandil. As an aside, the link between these two men and Burns and Mayharg is unclear. In any case, they offered the players $5,000 each to throw the World Series. The players scoffed. Well, how much would it take, the gamblers asked. I wouldn't consider nothing under 10000 said pitcher Lefty Williams. Seacott spoke up. It seems Seacott had discussed the plan with Gandil at length, but it had taken a long time for Seacott to wrestle his conscience into submission. Now he took the final step and committed to the conspiracy on his terms. He would go along, but only if he got his cash up front, $10,000 now. Gandil said that was fine. He looked at the other players. The fix, he said, was in. So they might as well get their cut. Later that night, when Seacott went up to his room, he found an envelope stuffed with $10,000 cash under his pillow. A second meeting of the conspirators was held a few days later when Burns and Mayharg returned from New York. They promised the players $20,000 to be divided among them for each lost game. Eight team members were on the plot. Gandil and Seacott, plus Joe Jackson, pitcher Lefty Williams, infielder Fred McMullen, shortstop Swede Risberg, and center fielder Happy Felsch. Third baseman Buck Weaver attended both meetings and knew all about the conspiracy. He claimed he never agreed to the deal or took any money, but he kept his mouth shut. The World Series opened on October 1st in Cincinnati. It was to be a nine-game series, unusual in baseball history. Most World Series consist of seven games. Major League Baseball had experimented once in 1903 and again in 1919, 1920, and 1921 with a longer series, largely in an attempt to drive up ticket sales. Eddie Seacott took the mound as pitcher in Game 1. 
he played like, well, like a guy trying to lose a ball game. It was a dismal outing for the White Sox. Cincinnati won the game 9-1. to Next day, Lefty Williams took the mound and was embarrassingly inept. The Reds won the game 4-2. to By now, rumors about the fix were swirling. Others on the team were starting to get suspicious, especially the catcher, Ray Schalk. He complained to the White Sox manager, basically the team's head coach, but Williams and Seacott had ignored his calls. Managers signal, using hand signs, the pitch for each play to the catcher, and the catcher then signals the pitcher. Pitchers can ignore these calls, but they usually don't. Seacott and Williams were basically pretending Schalk wasn't even there. It was strange and suspicious. Meanwhile, with two games lost, the players were owed $40,000, but the money wasn't delivered. The team members protested, but the gamblers said the money was coming, and they had to wait. The players were furious. Were they being double-crossed? Games 3, 4, and 5 were played in Chicago. The White Sox won Game 3. The pitcher for that game, not coincidentally, was not in on the fix. They lost games four and five, games Seacott and Williams pitched. After game four, Gandil called Lefty Williams into his hotel room. He handed him a package containing $10,000 and said, quote, there's your dough. The gamblers have called it off. Williams gave Jackson $5,000 and kept $5,000 for himself. The two men talked it over. Were they being double-crossed by Rothstein? Or was their own teammate, Chick Gandil, betraying them? No one liked Gandil, but was he a thief? One thing was sure, the deal was off, so the players no longer had to try to lose. And in fact, the White Sox won game six and seven, but they lost game eight, and therefore the entire series. The Cincinnati Reds were the World Series champions. The White Sox went home handful of them with at least some extra cash in their wallets. Exactly how much cash is one of the lasting mysteries of the scandal. We know $35,000 was distributed to five players, but we don't know what happened to the rest of the money. Rothstein sent at least $80,000 and perhaps as much as $120,000 to Chicago. It's possible that Rothstein's men took a cut, but researchers think it's more likely that Chick Gandil took the bulk of the remaining cash. He probably shared some with his best friend on the team, Fred McMullen. Now, Gandil gave an interview to Sports Illustrated in 1956 in which he claimed he never received a dime. And yet, after the 1919 season, Gandil walked away from the White Sox, moved to Los Angeles, and bought a brand new house. There were rumors, rumors Gandil later denied, that he was flashing wads of cash and flaunting a checkbook with a prominently written and very large balance. But these were just rumors. It's unlikely we'll ever know much more. Another thing we don't know is the intent of the players. They took the money, but were they trying to lose? In later interviews and testimony, all of the players claimed that from day one, they had played to win. They were, in their own way, trying to double-cross the gamblers. Maybe. 
Joe Jackson played consistently well in all eight games. Other players were consistently dismal. But was that intent or just bad luck? It's possible for a good ball player to have a bad eight games. And at the end of the day, does it really matter? The 1920 season began in April. Seven of the eight men remained with the White Sox. They rarely talked about what had happened. Jackson was having another great season. The others seemed fine, except for Seacott. The pitcher was moody and anxious. He spent a lot of time with his priest. Otherwise, the season was going well. Until August 31st, 1920, and a totally different allegation of game fixing. That day, around lunchtime, the phone started ringing and telegraphs started arriving at the office of the president of the Chicago Cubs. They all claimed that the Cubs were set to throw that afternoon's game to the Phillies. Nothing was ever proven against the Cubs, but the incident caught the attention of the new presiding justice of the Cook County Grand Jury. The judge decided that the matter of cheating in baseball deserved scrutiny. And weren't there rumors about last year's World Series? Maybe they should look into it. In this almost accidental way, the story hit the headlines again. Among those reading the papers was Billy Mayhark. Remember Mayhark, one of Chick Gandil's buddies with connections in New York? Mayhark was suddenly moved to tell his story. We don't know why, but that's what he did, at length, to the sports editor of a major daily paper. And then things got very serious, very fast. The next day, Kaminsky and his personal attorney held a meeting with the team's manager and an assistant state's attorney. Indictments would be handed down that day. Comiskey figured it would look better if he got ahead of this thing. Comiskey grilled the manager, asking him who, among the players, was most likely to spill his guts. Eddie Seacott, the manager said instantly. A guy spending that much time talking to his priest had something on his mind. Comiskey ordered his limo driver to find Seacott. Seacott walked into Comiskey's office shortly after and was confronted by stern faces. Only Comiskey's lawyer seemed at all friendly. Quote, you know, he said, this is going to be a long, drawn-out trial, and you don't want your wife and babies at this trial, do you? If you come clean and tell us the things we want to know, we will save you from going to the penitentiary or any fine or imprisonment of any kind. Seacott began to cry. For the next hour, he confessed to the whole scheme. He assumed that he had just been guaranteed immunity and that these men were acting with his best interests at heart. After signing a statement, Seacott was driven to the courthouse and repeated his confession to the grand jury. Meanwhile, another car swept off to collect Joe Jackson. A similar scene played out in Comiskey's office, except Jackson had the sense to ask if he should have his own lawyer. Comiskey's attorney assured him that wasn't necessary and promised Jackson he wouldn't be indicted, go to jail, or be fined if he talked now. So Jackson told them everything he knew. He was then whisked off to the courthouse, where he testified before the grand jury. 
By now, everyone in Chicago knew that Eddie Seacott and Shoeless Joe had confessed to being crooked. A mob of reporters and fans surrounded the courthouse. The door opened and Jackson stepped out to a wall of cameras and shouted questions. And then this happened. Why'd you wait so long to spill it, Joe? Hard guy. What's that? As sweet as a hard guy. Joe! Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. That's a scene from the 1988 movie Eight Men Out with actor D.B. Sweeney as Jackson. The incident was reported by sports writer Hugh Fullerton the next day, although in Fullerton's version, the kid, described as a little urchin, asks, It ain't true, is it, Joe? The story was widely repeated, and the child's question somehow transformed into, Say it ain't so, Joe. It's a great story. So it's a pity Fullerton probably made it up. Dozens of reporters saw Jackson on the courthouse steps, but only Fullerton claims to have seen the urchin and heard his question. Jackson himself always denied the incident. Still, no one can prove it didn't happen, so maybe it did. One more player, Lefty Williams, testified before the grand jury. All eight players were indicted. They became known in the press and have been known ever since as the Black Sox. It proved very difficult to get any gamblers in court. Rothstein's name came up, and he, deeply offended, declared he wouldn't see his good name besmirched. He demanded to be allowed to testify and told the story of the dinner at the Astor Hotel. No charges were ever brought against Arnold Rothstein. Curiously, right around this time, two members of the grand jury panel became very good personal friends with Arnold Rothstein. They visited him in New York year after year and enjoyed his hospitality at dinners and, of course, baseball games. I'm sure it was a complete coincidence. So Rothstein went free. The Black Sox would go on trial. What, meanwhile, of baseball? It was obvious that cheating was rampant and that no one in authority had lifted a finger to stop it. Demands for reform poured in. Charles Comiskey saw in these demands an opportunity. Now, remember Ban Johnson? Johnson was the president of the American League, the one who had suggested protecting 18 players on each team from the draft. Johnson and Kamitsky had once been very close friends, but for some reason, no one knows exactly why, Kamitsky and Johnson flipped from friends to mortal enemies. There arose between them a vicious mutual loathing. When the Black Sox scandal broke, Johnson saw it as his chance to bring down Comiskey. Comiskey saw it as his chance to bring down Johnson. There was a lot of talking and plotting and baseball owners meeting one another over cigars and whiskey. I won't go into all of the scheming. It gets complicated and hard to follow. At the end of the day, Comiskey won and outmaneuvered Johnson. While Johnson remained in his position with the American League, he was left powerless. Instead, a new position of enormous authority was created, the Commissioner of Baseball. But who could take on such an important job? It had to be someone above reproach, with an impeccable reputation. 
At the same time, it needed to be someone with a deep love of the game. And that brings us back to our good friend, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. He was perfect. He accepted the job on November 12th, 1920. Landis now ruled the game. God help you if you crossed him. The Black Sox trial began in late June 1921. By then, all of the players had their own attorneys who presumably gave their clients lectures about never assuming someone else's lawyer is going to do anything but screw you over. There had been some shenanigans in the lead-up to the trial. All of the grand jury documents, including the players' testimonies, had disappeared. Presumably, they had been stolen. But this ended up not mattering much. The testimony was recreated from the court reporter's transcripts. The state faced bigger problems. For one thing, game-fixing was not a crime. The best the grand jury could come up with was conspiracy and intent to injure the business of the White Sox. Intent to injure a business was usually reserved for cases of deliberate sabotage, like causing a boiler to explode or a train to go off the tracks. Meanwhile, Seacott, Jackson, and Williams all recanted their original grand jury confessions. It took nearly three weeks to even impanel a jury. More than 600 prospective jurors were questioned. White Sox fans were eliminated because they might prove too loyal to the team. Fans of the Chicago Cubs were also excused since they might be too hostile to the hometown rival. The final jury was made up of 12 white males who all claimed complete and utter indifference to baseball. In a baseball town like Chicago, it's a wonder they could rustle up that many. None of the eight players testified in their own defense, but their attorneys were good, and they came up with a compelling alternative explanation for the scandal. They focused on the rivalry between Van Johnson and Charles Comiskey. They alleged that Johnson had cooked up the cheating charges to ruin Comiskey, not caring that he would destroy the lives of the ballplayers in the process. One defense attorney in his closing argument called the players the, quote, galley slaves of a modern Rome whose work brought wealth and fame to Johnson, the man now using them as a means of obtaining revenge on his enemy, Kamitsky, unquote. This was plausible. It wasn't true, but it was plausible. To accept it, you had to ignore the fact that Seacott, Jackson, and Williams had confessed but they had been tricked by the lawyers who made promises they never intended to keep. The defense painted a picture of the players as hardworking, blue-collar guys who just wanted to play baseball. Their lives were dominated by fat cat owners in fancy suits living off the players' sweat and toil. Many Americans identified with this picture. It was an accurate representation of their own lives. Finally, the jury was sent off to deliberate. After two hours and 47 minutes, they came back with not guilty verdicts for all eight players. The courtroom erupted in cheers. The bailiff gave up shouting for order when the judge himself began to grin. The players were carried out on the soldiers of fans, and the party moved to a nearby Italian restaurant, where it lasted until early morning. Surely now, the players thought they could get back to baseball. But the next morning's papers contained a statement from Judge Landis. The commissioner of baseball stated, quote, 
regardless of the verdict of juries, no player that throws a ball game, no player that undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player that sits in conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing games are planned and discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever play professional baseball, unquote. Landis believed it was his job to draw a line under the scandal. The era of gambling in baseball was over. He had to make an example of the Black Sox. So he banned the men from the sport for life. It worked. The gambling and game fixing stopped. Baseball's reputation was restored. But many people then and now see Landis's decision as vindictive. The Black Sox have become the prototypical working men who just wanted to practice their craft. But the owners took advantage of them. The gamblers double-crossed them. The attorney screwed them over. And the commissioner condemned them. They were robbed of everything, not just their livelihoods, but their souls. A Field of Dreams is the ultimate expression of this myth, based on a short story by W.P. Kinsella. The 1989 movie tells the story of an Iowa farmer who one night hears a voice whispering, if you build it, they will come. Driven by a vision, he builds a baseball diamond in his cornfield. Soon the spirits of the Black Sox appear in the field to play baseball. And it's beautiful with the young men in their old-fashioned uniforms emerging from the cornstalks to play ball in the evening light. But here's the thing I can't get away from. The Black Sox took the money. It sucks to be them, but they cheated, they got caught, and they suffered the consequences. It's not so different from an attorney being disbarred, a doctor losing his or her license, or a writer caught plagiarizing and never being trusted by an editor again. Now, was the lifetime ban extreme? Sure. Is it absurd that the men are still not allowed in the Hall of Fame a century later? Of course. Do the owners deserve a lot of blame for what happened? Absolutely. They allowed gambling to flourish and didn't crack down on cheating. Then when they could no longer ignore the situation, the owners came down like a ton of bricks and made an example of the Black Sox. The problem with being made an example of is that you're taking the punishment for a whole lot of people who weren't made an example of. It's not fair. But there it is. After the trial, the Black Sox scattered across the country. Despite the lifetime ban, most of the men continued to play baseball one way or another, not pro ball, of course, but in semi-pro or so-called outlaw minor leagues not affiliated with the majors. Eventually, they all took other jobs. Eddie Seacott worked for Ford Motor Company for 24 years. Chick Candile became a plumber. Joe Jackson had a comfortable retirement. He owned several businesses, including a dry cleaners, and after Prohibition ended, a liquor store. Van Johnson was forced out of the American League in 1927 and died soon after, still hating Charles Comiskey. Comiskey had the satisfaction of outliving Johnson by a few months. Kennesaw Mountain Landis ruled the game of baseball until his death in 1944. Arnold Rosting continued his career of crime through the 1920s. In November 1928, he was shot in the stomach outside of the Park Central Hotel on 7th Avenue. He lived long enough to be questioned by the police, but true to his code, refused to name his assailant. 
As for the White Sox, after 1919, they entered a long dry spell, only returning to the World Series in 2005. There's another myth about the Black Sox, the idea that this was the moment when America lost its innocence. <sighs> Look, if, if you read popular American history, you'll find Americans are always losing their innocence over and over again. We supposedly lost our innocence at the Kennedy assassination, the bombing of Pearl Harbor on 9-11, and after the 1950s quiz show scandal. I'm sure many people were shocked at the Black Sox scandal, but that doesn't mean they had until that moment lived in a bubble of innocence. Surely we have learned that much in our look at the year 1919. The Black Sox story is usually told with little context. Let's remedy that. When the World Series opened on October 1st, 1919, Chicago was still cleaning up from the race riots in July. J. Edgar Hoover was finalizing plans for the first set of raids on suspected radicals, raids in which hundreds of Chicagoans would be dragged to jail. The Boston police strike had just ended, and the steel strike was about to begin. Early the morning after the first game of the series, Woodrow Wilson suffered the stroke that would effectively end his presidency. And the entire time the 1919 series was being played, African Americans were being hunted and slaughtered by white farmers and U.S. National Guard troops in Phillips County, Arkansas. That's just what was happening in the United States. If we're going to talk about unfairness and injustice, I think we can find people in 1919 far more deserving of our sympathies. I am not, myself, a huge baseball fan. I leave that to my husband and my son. But even I am missing baseball now that all sports are on hiatus to contain the spread of COVID-19. I am used to my house being filled with the sounds of crowds and announcers and the crack of the bat this time of year. It is part of the wrongness of this time that these things are missing. And while I am not a huge fan, I understand the pull of the game. There is something magical about a ballpark on a fresh spring day when the sun shines and the grass is impossibly green. Something about the pace of baseball eases you away from your normal life. You slip into a place with its own language, symbols, and rituals. The pitcher stands on the mound. For the length of a breath, he is perfectly still. And then his body twists, his arm swings back and around, and he hurls the ball toward the plate. And in that moment, before whatever happens, happens, anything is possible. Thank you so much for listening to The Year That Was. Make sure you join us on the Facebook page to discuss this episode. Look me up on Twitter and check out the website www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com for photos and sources. Thanks so much to my husband, Chris McAdams, for his baseball expertise and his patient explanation of the knuckleball. If you are a fan of the show, I invite you to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or become a patron. You can donate to the year that was either through Patreon or PayPal. On the website, just click on the support tab at the top of the page. I desperately need to thank with all of my heart, my very first two patrons who signed up right before I vanished off the earth for two months. Thank you. Thank you to Kara and to Maggie. Big hugs to you both. 
I'm going to quit promising delivery dates on podcasts until I'm sure I've got my act together, but I'm shooting for a new episode in two weeks. Still nailing down my schedule, but I can guarantee women's suffrage is on deck and prohibition. Thank you again. You guys are amazing. Stay safe. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was. 